to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely goodness, sorry, if I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you, for night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of our Lord. Would you please be seated. And let's pray again together. omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omni-holy God. We praise you for the fact that we are sitting here in your presence and we are not obliterated before your holiness. Lord, you are holy. You are infinitely set apart from sinners. Lord, you hate sin. Sin is antithetical to who you are. And yet, Lord, we are sinful. 
Even we who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, even we who have been given new hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we are still sinful. We still sin against you every day in many ways. Yet, Lord, you have not only given us the gift of physical life, of this life in this world, but, Lord, you have given us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And, Lord, we pray as those who are recipients of this great grace, would be champions for life, for the glory of your name. Lord, we pray that as we approach this passage, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, convict us of our sin. Lord, help us to see where we have failed you, where we have failed to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, the change that has been wrought in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit does not only bring salvation, it brings sanctification. The same work that raised our Lord and Savior Jesus from the grave is at work in us. Lord, we pray now with holy confidence that you would work in our hearts. Lord, that you would help us to love you and help us to love our neighbor for the glory of your name. Amen. Three years ago, I preached a sermon on Psalm 139. And I explained how this psalm powerfully describes four of God's attributes. God is the omniscient God. You see that in verses 1 to 6. He is all-seeing. God is the omnipresent God. From verses 7 to 12, He is all-present. God is the omnipotent God. From verses 13 to 18, He is all-powerful. And God is the omni-holy God. From verses 19 to 24, He is all-holy. So here we see these, these attributes of God that, that King David explains here to us. But penning this psalm was not merely an intellectual exercise for King David. Of course, God used King David's unique personality and powerful intellect to record this profound piece of poetry. However, this psalm is ultimately a work of the Holy Spirit as David was carried along by the Holy Spirit to record this prophecy of Holy Scripture as we read in 2 Peter 1.21. And so as such, David's theology was perfect. Again, this is a beautiful portion of God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, and clear word. Having right theology is vitally important. But theology is not an end unto itself. You can have perfect theology and still be unsaved. For David, 
theology led to doxology. Consideration of who God is, of God's attributes, resulted in worship from the heart of King David. So yes, theology leads to worship. But that's not all. David's right doctrine, his orthodoxy, led to orthopraxy. David's right understanding of God led to right behavior before God. David's consideration of God's glorious wisdom and presence and sovereignty and holiness led, to, led David to, to thorough self-examination and commitment to obedience. Does your theology lead to doxology? Does your orthodoxy lead to orthopraxy? Does your knowledge of God lead to worship? Does your knowledge of God lead to obedience towards God? Now, there are many places that we could go as we walk through Psalm 139. And I did this when I preached on this passage previously. However, this morning, I want to zero in on one particular application of this psalm. Your care, concern, and involvement in bringing to an end what is the worst man-made holocaust in human history. Abortion. This application is narrow, but as narrow as it is, it applies to us all. What are you doing to end abortion? This is not what we are doing as a church. This is not what the person sitting next to you or across the aisle is doing to end abortion. What are you doing? Abortion. The killing of an unborn baby is murder. Abortion rates in Canada are statistically significant to those in other Western countries. There are around 100,000 babies killed in this country every single year. Close to a million in the United States, a country with 10 times our population. But there are 56 million babies killed around the world every year. Around the same number of people that died in World War II. 1.5 billion babies have been killed since 1980. That is more human beings killed than in every war that has ever been fought in recorded history put together. Think of the grief of one mother, one father, when they hear that their, that their son has been killed in war. This is 1.5 billion people killed. In a war that human beings are waging against each other, and in a war that human beings are waging ultimately against Almighty God. We're horrified at abortion. We're horrified because as God's people, we love life. 
We're all horrified, but are you horrified enough to do something about it? Now, some might say this is not an issue that, that we should be concerned about, that, that we as Christians should be focused on the proclamation of the gospel. After all, after all, it's only the gospel that will change hearts. And I agree, it is only the gospel that will change hearts. I agree that the proclamation of the gospel is central to what we do as Christians. However, proclaiming the gospel is not all that we do as Christians. There are many aspects to our walk as Christians. Just turn with me in your Bible for a moment to, to Titus chapter 2, 11 to 15. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, law all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me ask you this morning, are you zealous? Are you zealous for good works? Are you zealous for good works? Not as a means of salvation, but as fruit of your salvation. Now, I have concerns, like many others, that social justice issues have in many cases usurped the centrality of the gospel in evangelical churches, or at least churches who call themselves evangelical. However, I'm also concerned in, in the fact that in many other churches that call themselves evangelical, that gospel centrality has led to a denial of the importance of dealing with social justice or what I believe should be called mercy ministry. The gospel is central. But wherever the gospel leads, ministries of mercy inevitably follow. Now, the gospel and mercy ministry are not like wings of a dove. The gospel is not a wing. The gospel is the bird. Love of God is one wing. Love for your neighbor is the other wing. And mercy ministry is part of that one wing, part of loving your neighbor as yourself. So in the gospel, as hearts are changed through the power of the Holy Spirit, flight is given to those wings. When the Holy Spirit regenerates a person's heart, removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, the Spirit begins to produce fruit in the believer. It's not perfect and perfectly mature fruit, but the fruit is present. It's recognizable. Throughout church history, when the gospel has gone forth with power, mercy ministry has followed. I had the privilege several months ago to speak to Lou Sotera, who was one of the key figures in the 1971 Saskatoon revival. He, he said that when that revival spread through Saskatoon, that, that even the police were amazed. 
that there was a significant reduction in crime. He said that even in churches where there had been, been long-standing issues between, between brothers and sisters in Christ, and even brothers and sisters in the same physical family, that, that people were, were, were getting up from services and going and asking forgiveness from each other and reconciling to each other. Neighbor love is part of the fruit of the gospel. Think about William, William Wilberforce, who, who once he got saved, fought so hard in the abolition movement, who also was, was involved in the society for the suppression of, of vice and, and even helped to found the RSPCA. Think of George Mueller and Charles Spurgeon and many other prominent Christian leaders who founded orphanages. New England Puritan Cotton Mather wrote, no person should pretend unto the name of a Christian who does not approve of the proposal of a perpetual endeavor to do good in the world. However, and this is important, this was not for Cotton Mather or any of these other men that I've mentioned as an end unto itself. Rather because Mather and these other men believed that such endeavors spread the fame of God and his Christ. In other words, they believed that God would be glorified through mercy ministry. They love God and they love people because of the gospel. And they wanted the name of God to be proclaimed through their love of other people. J. Gresham Mation, who, who fought so powerfully and biblically against the so-called social gospel in the early part of the 20th century, wrote in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, the Christian missionary, in other words, and the Christian worker at home as well as abroad, unlike the apostle of liberalism, says to all men everywhere, human goodness will avail nothing for lost souls. Ye must be born again. And he also said in the same book, it is only by a baseless caricature that Christian missionaries are represented as though they had no interest in education or in the maintenance of social life in the world. It's not true that they're interested only in saving individual souls and when the souls are saved, leave them to their own devices. Again, where the gospel goes forth with power, mercy ministry follows. This morning, as, as Joshua explained earlier, is known as Sanctity of Life Sunday in the United States. On January 13, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day because of the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legally legalizing abortion in the United States. Pastors and churches all over America are preaching messages condemning the practice of abortion and offering hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Now, it's not officially Sanctity of Life Sunday in Canada. Not even the most conservative prime ministers in Canada would, would ever declare a Sanctity of Life Sunday. It'd be political suicide in this country. There's been no Roe versus Wade in Canada. There are no laws governing abortion in Canada. Abortion laws in Canada were thrown out by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional in 1988. And that gives Canada the dubious honor 
of being one of only three nations in the entire world that have no abortion laws whatsoever. Absolutely anything goes. Do you know what the other two are? China and North Korea. Distinguished company indeed. I remember so clearly back in December, or back in, in January, or sorry, July of, of 2008, when, when Morgenthaler, the, the man who was, was practicing illegal abortions in his clinic in Montreal, was given the Order of Canada, Canada's highest civilian honor. On that day, I felt something I never felt before in my life. I was ashamed to be a Canadian. Are you horrified by abortion? Are you horrified enough to do something about it? Psalm 139 has a great deal to say to us about who God is and what our response should be to him and to the horrors of abortion. In this psalm, as, 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 day, as King David looks at, at who God is, there is both comfort and there is concern, even for the Christian. So first of all, in verses 1 to 6, we see the omniscient God. In this section, David is talking about the knowledge of God. This is sometimes referred to as, as God's omniscience or that God is all-seeing. In verses 1 to 3, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God's knowledge is not limited by space. Sitting, standing, lying down, walking, wherever David is, whatever God is doing, whatever David is doing, God sees him. But it's not just David. It's every human being on the planet. From the executive in the Manhattan office to the Inuit hunter on polar ice to the poor Chinese farmer in the rice paddy, God knows each one exhaustively. Every hair on every head of every human being in every city, town, village, or isolated outpost is counted by God. And if there was there, if there's life on any other planet in the universe, and I'm not saying there is, God would know each one of that individual of that life as well. God knows everything throughout his creation. But David he is not here referring to, to God's knowledge in general. For him, God's knowledge is personal. It's intensely personal. You have searched me. You have known me. So God's knowledge is not limited by space, but God's knowledge is not limited by time either. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. What's true for David's actions are also true for his speech. David says that God knows everything that he says and even everything that he is going to say before he says it. 
So this applies therefore also to his thoughts. God knows every word that every person who ever lived will ever say in their entire lifetime. He even knows every thought that every person who has ever lived will have. God is eternal. He is outside of time. Yet he is aware of every moment in time, past, present, and future. Now this is a comforting thought, isn't it, for the Christian? To, to know that God knows everything about you and still loves you gives you peace, right? But think about it for a moment, even just on a human level. Marriage is the most intimate of human relationships, at least it should be. My wife knows everything about me. That There are no secrets. My life is an open book, warts and all. And the fact that she knows it all and still loves me gives peace and comfort to me. It provides relational security. Well, how much more a relationship with God? Your loving Heavenly Father knows you intimately and exhaustively. The most shameful sins you have ever committed, and even sins you aren't aware of at this moment, are laid bare before Him. Yet He loves you. God loves you with the very same love that He has for His Son. His perfect, holy love could only come to you through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there's a massive comfort in this. But there's also cause for caution, for great caution. First of all, for unbelievers. All unbelievers will be destroyed. If you are here as an unbeliever this morning, trying to find salvation in any other means other than through faith in Jesus Christ, or if you are ignoring your need for salvation altogether, you are living as the enemy of God. Every sin you have committed and every sin you ever will commit is laid bare before God, and yet you do not have the covering of Christ's blood. You will give an account for every deed, every word, every thought, and you will bear the wrath of God for all eternity unless you repent and turn to Christ. So there is great caution in the omniscience of God for the unbeliever, but brothers and sisters, you need to exercise caution as well. Even though you are the recipient of God's perfect holy love, God is a holy judge. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the same is true for our actions. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you on the day of judgment, people give an account, not just for every 
action, but for also for every word, for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, this is not just for, for unbelievers. In Hebrews 10.30, the warning includes Christians. It says, the Lord will judge His people. These warning passages are one of the means whereby God preserves His people. For as Hebrews 10.39 says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. One of the ways that God keeps you from falling into unrepentant sin and keeps you from falling away altogether is to warn you of the dangers of sin. So we all need to be cautious. You and I cannot claim sinless perfection, ever. Even in your most holy moments and my most holy moments, we cannot claim sinless perfection, for even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, 6. As I discussed a couple months ago, in my sermon on the Sixth Commandment, you shall not commit murder. Exodus 20, 14 is not just, in, in that commandment, not just the act of murder that is forbidden. It's also murder in the heart. Turn please with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is explaining that the, the Ten Commandments are not just external, they're internal. They deal with the heart not just what you do and say on the outside, it's what's taking place on the inside. If you call, if you're angry with your brother, you're committing murder in your heart. If you call someone a fool, you're committing murder in your heart. And the reality is we've all committed murder in our hearts. Some of us have done it even this morning. And this should inform us in the way that we deal with sin, even the sin of abortion. My pastor, Ryan Fullerton, when I was in seminary, preached, preached on this in his first sermon on Sanctity of Life Sunday. This was the first time that they preached on this, and it was January 2009. He preached on abortion before, but this is the first time that he actually preached a Sanctity of Life Sunday. He's done it every year ever since. And he said, real gospel humili humility that shapes the way that you talk about to anybody about any sin. If you're humble in the gospel, it will shape the way you speak to others about their sin. He said that gentleness is produced in hearts that understand the gospel. That we need to understand that we were all in the exact same position until Christ effected change in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, you were no better than the abortionist because you committed the same sin as the abortionist. 
you and I, apart from God's grace, would be condemned as guilty for murder. But I want to add another way that you break the sixth commandment that I didn't address then. If you do not try to stop someone who's committing murder, you're breaking the sixth commandment. This is a sin of, of omission, not doing what you should. And you might think that, that if you were to see a, a murder in process, that you would do whatever you could to stop that from happening. But I can think of a time I didn't step in to stop a murder. When I was at the Toronto Baptist Seminary, there was an abortion clinic right across the street from the church. I was apathetic. I did very little during my time there to stand against what was taking place in that building. Now I'm sure that I prayed on occasion, but I know that I didn't do nearly enough. But there's one occasion in particular and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a warm spring day and, and, and I, was, I lived in the, the house directly adjacent to the church and, and, and a man in a red pickup truck pulled up and parked actually in the, the church parking lot right next to where I was sitting. And a teenage girl got out of the truck and seemed to be his daughter and walked into the abortion clinic. And that father pulled out a newspaper and began to read as his grandchild was murdered not 50 feet from where he and I were sitting. I wanted so badly to walk up to him and say something, but I didn't. I don't want to commit that sin ever again. I want to do whatever I can I'll give an account for my words and for my failure to use my words to uphold the sanctity of life. Now I praise God that, that I am under the blood of Christ and that sin has been forgiven by Christ. But we will all give an account for our words. Now in the life of the believer, yes, there's, there is, there's no, not going to be any sadness in that moment that, that, that we, will, we will rejoice in the forgiveness that we've received in Christ. But every word, even every word that you have spoken in secret will be proclaimed from the housetops. There will be no secrets on that day. So what can you do to stop abortion? Well, you can stop abortion by talking about it but by talking to others in your family and, and co-workers who are, who are, are pro-abortion, you can, you can tell them lovingly and, and graciously that this is a human life. A human being made in the image of God who is worthy of dignity and respect. You can stop abortion by praying about it. You can stop abortion by sharing the gospel with, again with, with those who are, are pro-abortion or those who have had abortions. God hears all of your words. You've been given a mouth. You've given, been given the ability to speak, to glorify God with your words. God hears 
all of your words. Use your words to help, to ask him for help. To do what you could never do in your own strength. But God is not only omniscient, God is also omnipresent, verses 7 to 12. God not only knows everything you do, say, and think, God is also there. David asks where he could go from God's spirit or where he could flee from God's presence. Now, it's not that David wants to depart from God altogether, but but that David feels vulnerable. He feels exposed. And once again, there's both comfort and caution. If David did want to run from God, he knows it would be futile because God is everywhere. He is all present. Not even the grave could hide David from God. As Robert Raymond, the theologian, explains that God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Or that everything and everybody are immediately in his presence. Jeremiah describes this in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide from the omnipresent God. And for one with the guilty conscience, it's a terrifying thought. Think back over the past week. Think back of sins you've committed over the past week. God is not only, was not only there with you, sorry, God was not only aware of your sin, he was also there. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they felt compelled to try to hide, but their attempt was in vain. There was nowhere to hide from the omnipresent God. Now, I don't know about you, But when I think about what is happening to so many children, getting close to 100,000 every year in Canada alone, it makes me angry. It makes God angry too. But again, I cannot pretend that I have moral superiority. According to God's standard of perfect holiness, I have no righteousness apart from that which has been credited to me through Jesus Christ. And you are in the same boat. So how do you think God feels about abortion? God is present in that abortion clinic. God is present in that hospital room. God is present when that boyfriend is talking to his girlfriend, talking her into having an abortion. God is there when you choose to sleep in rather than come to to pray with us for the unborn on Tuesday morning. God is there. When you fail to speak to that coworker who's promoting abortion, God is there when you don't share the gospel with someone out of fear. How do you think God feels about that? He tells you to fear him. Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hebrews 4.13 And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Unbelievers have no hope. 
Again, without turning to Christ, God will destroy your soul and body in hell. So again, there's caution for the Christian as well, but there is comfort. Look at verses 9 to 12 as, as David shifts to discuss God's presence and his care. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I remember many years ago, I was scuba diving in Vanuatu. And the skipper of the boat that I was on wanted to take me deep to show me some giant sea fans. Now the maximum sport diving depth is 130 feet. But he took me down to 180 feet. 50 feet deeper than I'd ever been before. And as we were looking around down there, I, I began to feel drunk. I began to feel extremely drunk. This is a feeling that I'd spent much of my youth chasing, but I have no desire to experience again, especially at 180 feet. I was experiencing something that is known as it's called nitrogen narcosis, where the, the, the gases that were in my scuba tank under pressure became toxic to my body. I was essentially drunk at 180 feet. And then I lost sight of of the, the, the dive master, just him and me down there, and, and I felt a, a, a shot of fear. Now, if panic had sat in at that moment, I very likely would have died. But I remembered that God was with me, even in the depths of the sea. And I prayed, and I knew the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Now, I still had those feelings. I, I was still experiencing, experiencing nitrogen narcosis, but it was completely different. The fear was not controlling me. As we began to slowly ascend around, around a, this, the, a, a deep sea pinnacle, the, 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 the feeling started to go away, and it ended up being really a, an excellent dive. But I learned a very important lesson. In that moment, that wherever I am, God is with me. David continues in verses 11 and 12. He says, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not as dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In verse 11, when David says, Surely the darkness shall cover me, does he mean that the darkness can't hide me or the darkness can't hurt me? Well, the word that's translated here as cover usually means to bruise or to crush. So I believe what he's saying here is that the darkness can't hurt him because God is protecting him. Psalm 23 verse 4 is appropriate here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So how does God's omnipresence impact you? Again, God wasn't just watching you this past week. God was with you, right there beside you, all around you, indwelling you through his Holy Spirit this past week. So you can, as a Christian, take comfort and take caution as well. Caution that you will not fall into sin. But for the unbeliever, God was present there with you as well. No, not indwelling you, but they're present. 
with you in your sin. Well, now in verses 13 to 18, David turns to consider the omnipotent God. God is all-powerful. He created the entire universe with a word. He is providentially governing every atom with his almighty hand. But as glorious as that is, David is not thinking about creation, again, in impersonal terms. He's thinking about his, his own creation. He's thinking about the fact that God made him God has formed his inward parts. God knit him together in his mother's womb. And praise bursts forth from David's mouth. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Verse 14. Now our, our modern understanding of microbiology makes this even more amazing. The, the synapses in your brain the rods and the cones in your eyes that help you to see light and color. Centrosome, lysosome, mitochondria, and all the, the RNA and DNA inside them are all made by God. Each scientific discovery about our bodies creates new vistas for the, the glory of God. God made it all. God put it all together by the working of His sovereign power. God's omnipotence in making him was a powerful comfort for David. It's also a powerful comfort for Job in the midst of his severe trial. Job 10, verses 11 and 12. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You've granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has preserved my spirit. David continues. Not only was he mysteriously assembled by God's power, but David says that his days, all of them, are under God's sovereign plan. That nothing can happen to him apart from God's sovereign will. And yet again, David responds with worship, with worship. Verses 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. If I awake, I am still with you. It is not that, that here that David finds God's thoughts precious, even though that's true, but that God's thoughts for David are precious. The emphasis here again is on God's thoughts. They are vast, more than every grain of sand. It's been estimated that there are seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the earth. And God's thoughts to David are more than those. That's a lot of thoughts. That's a lot of precious thoughts. And this isn't an exaggeration. God has more than seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion thoughts towards every one of his people. God has more than seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion thoughts towards you. But it's not just towards you. Again, there is comfort and caution. Not just towards you, but towards every human being in this room. Towards every human being in Kelowna, in Canada, in the entire world throughout history. Including every human being whose life is cut short by abortion. There is no question that a child in the womb is life. Human life. Abortion is the murder of a human being made in the image of God. Please turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 
chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. The creation of man is the crowning achievement of God's works in creation. And Anthony Hockham explains that man in, as a, as the Im, in the image of God was to mirror God. As a mirror reflects, so should man reflect God. When one looks at a human being, one ought to see him or her as a certain reflection of God. God's communicable attributes is holiness, goodness, love, and so on. So to be in the image of God is, it means to mirror God, but it also means to represent God. Like an ambassador represents a country in, his, in, a, in, a, in a foreign country that he's living in. Man represents God on earth. We are living in a foreign country as God's representatives on earth. And as God's representatives, we have the authority of God to represent God. And we have a responsibility that goes with that authority. To be concerned about the things that God is concerned for. And one of the things that God is concerned for is for the sanctity of human life. But again, God is not concerned for, just for the sanctity of human life as an end unto itself, but because, because that human life is made in His image. And it's ultimately about His glory. As Calvin said, the image of God is found in man's soul not totally annihilated by the fall, but frightfully deformed because of the sin of, our first Adam, of the first Adam. As far as our relationship to our fellow human beings goes, that very little reveals, reveals our deformity as powerfully as emotion, as, sorry, as abortion. Again from Calvin, the unborn, though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being. And it's an almost monstrous crime to rob it of life which is not yet, it has not yet begun to enjoy. So this great crime of abortion, as heinous as it is, is crime ultimately against God. Is it, as, it is against the God in whose image that child is made. As an image bearer, the highest calling of the human being is worship. And abortion is robbing God of that worship or of potential worship. Theologian J.L. Cool said that a person may not be killed for this reason, that he is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praise and therefore anyone who kills another person thereby robs God. So we're talking here about someone who is, is a worshiper in potentiality or in actuality. Mark Jones applies this principle to abortion. He says, each abortion potentially robs Christ of an embodied living worshiper, the kind God seeks to glorify both himself and his son. Abortion is so wrong because it robs God of his highest prerogative in the, word, in the world, a creature made in the image of God who worships God by the son. 
How regularly do you consider that the Lord made you and is holding the very cells of your body together by his sovereign power? How regularly do you praise and thank him for the gift of life, especially of eternal life that you've been given? How regularly do you consider that, that men and women are destroying Babies made in the image of God through abortion. How regularly do you pray that the Lord would bring this mass murder to an end? But again, don't just point the finger at them. Remember that in your apathy, you are complicit in their sin. Remember that whenever you are even sinfully angry with anyone, you are committing murder against a person who is been made in the image of God in your heart as well. So all of these things, the, the omniscience of God, the, the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence God leads David to consider the, the omni-holy God in verses 19 to 24. God is not just holy. He is infinitely holy. He is all holy. As Paul Washer explains, God's holiness means that he is absolutely and utterly separate and transcendent above his creation and separate and transcendent above his creation's corruption. Stephen Charnock powerfully expresses God's holiness as an excellency above his other perfections. It is his glory and beauty. As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection of the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. D.A. Carson concurs. He says, holiness is less an attribute than what he is. It has to do with the very Godhood of God. Now, I could amass quotations from authors trying to communicate the holiness of God to us, but there is no declaration that compares with what we find in God's Word. Two proclamations of worship stand out in particular, that of the seraphim in Isaiah 3, 6, 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. This is echoed by the four creatures in Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Perhaps the, the clearest metaphor that is profound in Scripture to describe God's holiness is used by the Apostle John when he said in 1 John 1.5, 1, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light is not just on the opposite spectrum from darkness. It is completely different. It's a different thing altogether. Darkness cannot dwell with light. They're completely separate. They're completely opposed to each other. That is the holiness of God. Yes, God is love. But God is not love, love, love. He is holy, holy, holy. And God in His holiness hates the wicked. David, in responding to God's holiness, is committed to the same. Look at verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate those who hate you, O Lord. Do not loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David says that God hates the wicked, so he hates the wicked as well. He asks for the Lord's justice against them. 
This is referred to as an imprecatory prayer, a prayer for the Lord to judge the wicked. David, it says he, he wants nothing to do with those who speak against his God. He hates them. He hates them with complete or perfect hatred. He counts the enemies of God as his enemies. I wonder if this makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Because after all, doesn't Jesus command us in Matthew 5, to love our enemies? Well, friends, God does not change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is the same God. He has the same attributes for all eternity. First of all, notice that, God, that David rather is not praying an imprecatory prayer against his enemies, but against God's enemies. This prayer is not for personal vengeance, but that God's holiness will be vindicated. Sam Storms explains that, that his prayer is that God would act justly in dealing with transgressors. David's passion was for the triumph of divine justice, not the satisfaction of personal malice. So in other words, David is asking God to do what God has promised he would do in both the Old and the New Testaments. Judge the wicked. David understands that all sin is ultimately committed against the holy God. That sin is an affront to God's holiness and David is horrified. And he prays that God would do something about it. Again from Sam Storms. The motivation behind such prayers is zeal for God's righteousness, God's honor, God's reputation, and the triumph of God's kingdom. He asks, is our willingness to ignore blasphemy and overlook evil due to deficiency and our love for God and his name? In light of the holiness of God, David doesn't stop with the wickedness out there. The wickedness out there isn't even his primary concern or his primary responsibility. David turns to examine his own heart. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Examine your own heart. Does your lack of involvement and protecting babies in the womb points to a lack of concern for the holiness of God. Does your lack of involvement in protecting babies in the womb point to a lack of love for God and for those babies? Are you complicit in killing those who are made in the image of God? Are you killing those who are made in the image of God by refusing to share the gospel with others, even those who have committed abortion? Are you killing those who have been made in the image of God in other ways? Listen to Proverbs 24, verses 10 to 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? History looks back in judgment on those, on those German churches who failed to take a stand against the Holocaust 
that was taking place right under their noses. History looks back in judgment on those churches in the South that practiced and promoted slavery. Now many in Germany pled ignorance. And that's true in part. They didn't know the horrors of the concentration camps. However, they did see the trains full of Jews traveling through their towns. They heard the stories and the rumors of what was taking place in those camps. Similarly, in slavery, very, very few knew the, the reality of what was taking place in some of those plantations and, and just how abominable life was for those slaves. But so many, even in the church, turned a blind eye. So few did anything about it. And the same holds true for us and abortion. What will history say about us? Even more importantly than that, what will God say about you or to you? You can't claim ignorance about this. Why did so few start and even fewer finish our plan to protect training or speak for the unborn training sessions? Why are our Tuesday prayer times so poorly attended? Now, I understand that you have other responsibilities, but are those responsibilities more important than this? This is a genuine question. Now, maybe you legitimately can't make it. And if that's the case, I understand. Their work and their family commitments. But are you praying at other times? Is the plight of, an, of the unborn a regular part of your personal and family prayer life? Now again, I don't want to browbeat anyone into getting serious about this. I don't want you to do this or get involved just because I told you to. But I'm praying, and I've been praying, that the Holy Spirit will convict you as he has me, of any apathy or lack of compassion, of any failure to do something. Will you join me in praying for an end to abortion in Canada and around the world? Will you join together in praying that to the Lord to ask him what he would have you do personally? Will you join together in praying that the Lord will give us love for him and love for others that compels us to pray and compels us to act? Now, I'm not suggesting that each one of us needs to get out there on the street at the, in front of the hospital on Tuesdays. But wouldn't it be glorious if we all got involved in pro-life ministry in whatever way we, by God's grace, can Imagine if many of us were, were faithful to be out there on the street with Speak for the Unborn. Uh, imagine if, if many of us were, were coming together on Tuesday mornings to pray. Imagine if many of us were, were reaching out with the gospel to those who are pro-abortion and to those who have had abortions. Imagine if many of us were, were serving mothers who decided to keep their baby to serve them in, in practical ways. Imagine if all of us are praying together and, and individually for an end of abortion to abortion in this country and around the world. 
A heart that is transformed by the gospel will begin to produce gospel love for God and others. Again, the gospel is the dove that makes the wings move and enables the bird to fly. Jesus Christ died for your sins and for my sins. Even our sin of apathy in championing the cause of the, for the unborn. We have been given the gift of life through the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Stephen Charnock said that justice would draw the sword and drench it with the blood of the offender. Mercy would stop the sword and turn it from the breast of the sinner. God didn't just stop the sword. He plunged it into the heart of his son. John Piper explains that the wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. Not just your life, but your soul has been saved through the work of Jesus Christ. And you have been saved not by works, but for works. God has prepared every good work you will ever do in advance. He is at work in you through Jesus Christ to perform those works. What is God doing and what will God do in and through you to bring an end to abortion? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this gospel. Lord, we are all guilty. We're all guilty of murder, at least in our hearts. Lord, I pray as those who have been pronounced not guilty, as those who have been pronounced righteous, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he bore our sins, as he bore the wrath that we deserve, as our guilt was imputed to him, as his righteousness is imputed to us. Lord, our life is not our own. It has been bought with a price, with the most precious price. Help us, Lord, as your people who have been redeemed. Lord, to seek you in repentance and faith. To seek you in prayer, asking that you would work in and through us to do what you would have us to do. To bring an end to this man-made holocaust. For the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.